Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Amen. That's the first of our readings. And the second is from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 to 34. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. 
Amen. Roger. Well, thank you, Johnny, for reading. Let me add my welcome to Chalmers tonight for what is a very important topic. So let me lead us in prayer, and please keep 1 Corinthians 11 open. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray you'd help us by your Spirit to hear your voice and apply it rightly to our own hearts and to our corporate life together as a church. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, tonight we are thinking about the Lord's Supper, or communion, as it's also known. But we're not just thinking about it. We are going to be sharing in it. That's the table laid before me. And I think whether you're a Christian or not, I hope that is is clearly a relevant topic. I don't think I need to spend time uh, persuading us of that. This is something Christian churches do all over the world. Um, We do it once a month. Uh, Others do it more frequently or less frequently. But everyone does it. So the question is... When we do it, what's going on? What are we actually doing and why? How do we do it in a God-pleasing way? I'm aware as we come to a topic this central that depending on our background, we'll have all sorts of questions in our minds. Um, For some, it might just be curiosity if you're new to church things. At the other end of the spectrum, some will come knowing some of the big debates there have been in church history or perhaps with friends or family members from different traditions, with very different understandings of what's going on. I'm aware there are a few here like that tonight. But I guess most of us come with the personal questions, perhaps intensely personal questions. Questions like, how should I approach this meal? What should I think about? If I really stuffed up last night or last week, or at one particular spectacular failure in my life? Or do I still take it? Would it be safer not to? Is there a way back if you've really blown it? And I want to promise you that we we are going to get to those intensely personal questions, practical questions at the end. But actually, always, before we bring our questions to the passage, always we should let... God's Word set the agenda for us. We should give the Holy Spirit the microphone by letting his inspired Word um, set our direction. And so you'll see from the back of the service sheet where there's an outline, our opening question is, what's going on? Although not in a kind of calm, academic, I wonder what's going on, but, but actually as a kind of outraged exclamation. Um, I wasn't brave enough to put more than just a couple of question marks and exclamation marks, and I certainly didn't underline or use capital letters, but that's what Paul would be doing. What is going on, Corinth? That's the kind of tone in this passage. Verse 17 gives us a clue. In the following instructions, I do not commend you. They're getting this badly wrong in this church family. So unlike last week, 11 verse 2, we had, I commend you in these things. Uh, This time it's a straight rebuke seems like in Corinth, they were reflecting God-given gender differences in culturally appropriate clothing. That was last week. Something they were doing well, even though they didn't understand the reasons why. If you're curious about that, please go back and listen. But when it came to the Lord's Supper, well, they were getting it all wrong on the ground. It was a complete mess. 
a real complete mess. Look at the end of verse 17. When you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. Just pause a moment and, and realize the strength of what Paul's saying there. That phrase, when you come together, that's just talking about the church gathering for a meeting like this. It's when they're assembling to meet as church. Uh, all of these chapters, actually, 11 to 14, are all about when you come together, when you gather as the local church. But Paul's saying it would be better to cancel your service. It would be better to cancel the meeting, to not have tonight the way that you're sitting around this table. Your meetings do more harm than good. Your communion is not edifying or encouraging. It's divisive. It's damaging. Actually, we're going to see, without exaggeration, it's deadly for them. Something's going seriously wrong here. And we need to get our heads into that original situation before we can apply it to our hearts and our church today. So join me in point one to, to think what was going on that was so bad. Verses 18 to 22 make it very clear that the Corinthians had cliques at communion. When they came to the Lord's Supper, the very meal that was supposed to represent their unity in Christ as one body, well, actually, it become a worked example of how there was an in-crowd at church and an out-crowd, the haves and the have-nots, the important ones, and the losers. The issues introduced there in verse 18. In the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. We've heard about divisions before, chapters 1 to 4, the, the different fan clubs of different leaders. You know, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. But this division is even worse. Look at verse 20. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So what's going on? Notice in those verses I've just read, two key bits of information. Firstly, they're not all eating at the same time. Some of the Corinthians are kind of charging ahead. Verse 21, in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. That's why later in verse 33, he'll say, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Some of them are charging on. That's the first clue. The second clue is they're not sharing food together. Some are kind of gorging themselves while others go hungry. Some are getting drunk while one goes hungry. So what's actually happening on the ground? Well, we need to realize when they were celebrating the Lord's Supper, um, they did it as part of a meal, it seems. Uh, so, so don't think of our kind of thimbles of, of wine or um, kind of postage stamp size uh, bread on the table. They're having a meal. There's enough food that you can actually uh, gorge on. It's more like a kind of bring-and-share meal with communion celebrated at it as part of it. Except this church didn't bring and share. They brought and they ate. Or at least the early arrivers did. The ones who couldn't be bothered to wait for the stragglers to come in. Those who, in verse 22, had plenty of nice food that they could eat at home and drink at home if they wanted to. 
those in verse 22 who actually own houses of their own, or in other words, the rich ones. You see, what's going on here is that the richer, upper-class Christians in Corinth were feasting themselves because they could arrive early from their kind of leisurely days, while those who had to work much longer days, the shopkeepers, the slaves, the ones who don't own houses, the ones who come to church as soon as they can get off their shifts, well, they turn up later and discover the food's all gone, the bread and wine's all consumed. And look at the effect, verse 22. Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Paul thinks this is utterly outrageous. It's completely out of step with what should be happening at church and especially what should be happening around this table. But of course, that behavior was totally normal in Corinthian society as it is today. It was normal in business meetings or homes for the really important people to dine in the nice room with the posh food, while the lower status folk kind of got the scraps in an adjoining room. It was normal for for menial laborers to be on a different daily timetable to the wealthy. Around the city, no one important would, would expect to wait until the slaves knock off to eat. It's just normal out there in Corinth but it is not normal here in church. It does still happen today. When I served in London in a workplace ministry, it was always really fascinating visiting Christians for lunch at their office because you could almost immediately tell their job status. Um, So you you meet a short-term IT contractor, and we meet at the door and go around the corner for a sandwich in a coffee shop. A permanent employee, but if they're quite junior, might manage to get me into the subsidized canteen. But just every so often, I'd be meeting a kind of senior executive for a a Bible study or a Christian partner sponsoring a Christianity Explored course in their law firm. And I realized on those few occasions that above a certain floor in those shiny offices, you don't go to the food. The food comes to you. Amazing food, just sat there on the board table if you fancy grazing. It's just normal in our society, as it was in there, for this kind of stratification, rungs on a ladder, status. You know your place, you know who's in, you know who's out. You know who has the wealth and who doesn't. You know who's a tiddly little undergrad or a promising PhD or a serious postdoc or a mighty professor with a permanent chair. And you definitely don't expect all of those to be mucking in eating together around a table. It's normal out there. But it's not how things work in here. In fact, it's an outrage to have cliques in church or at communion. We know from chapter 1, Corinth was a church that didn't have loads of kind of rich and famous folk. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. Not many, but some. We know the church had slaves in it. Chapter 7, were you a bondservant when you were called? Don't be concerned about it. So there was a real social mix in this church. But rather than their church meetings being a kind of glorious testimony that Jesus brings all those kinds of people together, we're all saved by grace. We all come in the same door. We all kneel empty-handed at the foot of the cross. Rather than that, 
Well, the Lord's Supper was another chance for the rich to hang out with their mates, with their type, enjoy a feast for themselves. But forget about the poor. There'll be ages, and they don't add much to the party anyway. They don't bring much, to be honest. They don't bring food or good food. They're pretty dull with their conversation. They can sort themselves out. Let's just, let's just begin. Paul says, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat when each one goes ahead with his meal. So there's our first point. In church, there should be no divisions over social economic differences, especially at communion. Now, I'm pretty sure when we come to take communion, we're not kind of dividing into socioeconomic clubs. I do think, though, we can, we can easily drift into this individualistic, kind of selfish approach to church life. After all, it is in the air we breathe out there. Coming to church as a private consumer, not a corporate servant, just thinking, what can I get out of church? Hoping it will suit me, serve me. So I wonder if it would be worth us reflecting who do I tend to gravitate towards in conversations on a Sunday? Who do we ask to social events? Of course, we'll, we'll want to look out for, for people we know well and look out for people in our small group. Friends are a really good thing. But do I only befriend people who are my type? Do I only hang out with those who are easy or fun to chat with? Or worse, those who are useful? The subtle where we pay more attention to those who have money or power, whether in the church or the world. Or if you're single, only paying attention to those who are really attractive that you can imagine as a possible marriage partner. For all of us, it's worth asking the question, are we at risk of being cliquey in church? Do the folks from Cord, the network I'm often involved with, only talk to each other? Or do we get to know older and younger folk? Do the academics talk with the non-academics, however hard that might be for, for both sides? When the undergraduate students go away next weekend, will there be a kind of cool crowd and then the rest? Will the sporty types just be speaking to each other? Will some of the less socially able be stuck on the edge of things? Or will that weekend be the one place in the student world where a family of genuinely, genuinely different people, misfits with each other socially, genuinely love each other because of the radically countercultural gospel of Jesus Christ. Likewise, do professionals speak to non-professionals? And do we look forward to our monthly church family prayer meeting where we all come together as a chance to actually mix, not just look for someone who's exactly my age and stage? I'm not saying we should all be extrovert in personality or capacity. It's just about seeking to love people who are not like me. You see, in church, there should be no divisions over social economic differences. Things have got so bad in Corinth, verse 19, where Paul is wondering if, if some of them are really Christians. You see, that's the one distinction that matters. Are you a Christian? Because if you are, there's real unity. Throughout these chapters, we keep seeing that there's real differences. Last week, men and women, a God-given difference and yet real unity. Next time, chapter 12, spiritual gifts, different gifts, God-given, but real unity. And so don't let wealth or social position tear us apart. 
Church should be the one place where there isn't competition and pretension. There isn't trying to prove that I'm someone or trying to compare myself with others and find my place by squashing someone else or wishing I was someone else. It's the one place that can be left at the door. Why? Well, this is point two, and this gets us to the heart of what the Lord's Supper is about and why their distortion of it was so awful. At the heart of what we celebrate together at the Lord's Supper is that Jesus Christ died for each of us to bring all of us into new covenant relationship with God. Just read through with me from verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So, whereas the Corinthians' attitude, as usual, was, it's all about me, it's all about now, I just want to enjoy my food, just want to get on with it, the Lord's Supper is actually supposed to be about Jesus. Uh, Verse 24, do it in remembrance of me. Verse 24, do this in remembrance of me. It's about Jesus. What about Jesus? Well, specifically, his death. Verse 26, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So it's about Jesus, it's about his death. What about his death? Well, verse 24, Jesus was dying for us. Verse 24, this is my body, which is for you. Now that that phrase doesn't mean that the bread literally, miraculously becomes the flesh of Jesus has traditionally believed in a Catholic mass, a Roman Catholic mass. That reading doesn't actually make sense of the original context of these words. When Jesus first said this, he was standing there as a living human being, holding the bread in his hands. It was clearly metaphorical, it was clearly symbolic for the disciples, as it is now. It it represents his death. It recalls his one-time sacrificial death on the cross. It doesn't turn into him for repeated offering of any sort. But nevertheless, the the physical image, the visceral image of, of broken bread does point us kind of tangibly to Jesus' death on the cross. Likewise, the physical act of actually eating it is a kind of tangible expression of our faith in Jesus, our dependence on him. Put it like this, we eat food to keep us alive. And as we eat this bread, it's a great reminder that we depend on Jesus just as much for eternal life. Jesus spoke those words first at the Passover meal with his disciples. Passover was the meal where Um, God's people looked back to the great exodus rescue. We thought about it a bit this morning. That night in Egypt where a lamb died in place of the firstborn son. And as the family ate the lamb together, they knew that but for this lamb that we're eating, but for the death of the lamb, we would be at risk from God's judgment. 
from the angel of death passing over. It was clearly a substitutionary meal. It was a reminder that sacrifice was needed. And so Jesus picks up the bread from that meal and says, this is my body. Not the lamb back then, but the lamb right here. This is my body given for you. Isaiah 53 predicted it. Listen to the same language. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The reason Jesus allowed himself to be led like a lamb to the slaughter was so that wandering sheep, like all of us, could be brought back home. And so as we gather around the table later, we're to fill our minds with thanksgiving that Jesus died for us, died the death we deserve, paid the price over our heads. And that should level the ground inside a church community. Do you see that? In a Christian church, no one approaches God on the strength of their GCSEs or A-levels or the university they went to or how many letters are after their name or their titles or bank balance. No one's counting how much money you've given to charity or whether you're a trustee on a board or even how many people we're reading the Bible with or have witnessed to. Now, this meal brings each of us, every Christian, back to the foot of the cross to say afresh, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. There's no in crowd here apart from in him. And every Christian is in that. No shortcut, no credit in the bank, no old boys club, no power plays, no snobbery, no reverse snobbery. No sexism, no racism, no classism, no elitism. It just doesn't fit in a church. Because Jesus died for each of us. We all needed him to. We all had a debt none of us could afford to pay. And so, understanding that about the Lord's Supper, I wonder if you can understand Paul's horror at what they'd done to it in Corinth. This very meal, this, this gracious leveler, this celebration has been turned into a selfish display of the haves and the have-nots. It utterly, directly denies the point. We're all supposed to sit around this table because we all came in the same door, the cross of Christ. The point's so important, it gets repeated in verse 25, where Jesus takes the cup after supper, <coughs> excuse me, and says, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. What this is showing, it's not just that Jesus' death pays the moral overdraft. It's not just that Jesus absorbs the wrath of God to get us kind of back to neutral. No, positively, it brings us into new covenant relationship with God. That's why Johnny read from Jeremiah just briefly, to, to see this amazing covenant that we're brought into. Covenant's just a secure relationship, like a marriage, a relationship with solemn vows. And the vows that God has made, 
for his new covenant people are amazing. Let me just read again a tiny bit of it. Listen out for the every member benefits of the new covenant. They shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, I will remember their sin no more. From the least to the greatest. The new covenant, it's, it's radically classless. It's inclusive. Every single member who trusts Jesus from the least to the greatest, will know the Lord. No second-hand relationships mediated through a priest. They'll all know me, and they'll all experience full forgiveness. I will remember their sin no more. Intimate connection with our Maker. Assurance of full forgiveness forever. That's what the meal's about. That's the amazing good news we're proclaiming as we gather as a church to celebrate the supper. The wonderful news that in a world that, that's jockeying for position, bullying for position, where people are trying to prove themselves, whether to others, to their maker, to themselves, in a world where people are trying to hide themselves, because if people really knew what I was like, they could really see my heart, if they really knew my past, would anyone accept me? Against that backdrop, Jesus says, I know exactly what you're like, but this cup is a new covenant in my blood that brings you into permanent marriage with your maker. It's a contract signed in my blood. Marriage vows including total forgiveness for all who trust in Jesus' death. And so again, how could you have cliques at church, says Paul. That's point two. And in lots of ways, that's the really big one. Point two is what I kind of want us to hold on to in our minds and hearts, especially as we get into the practical nitty-gritty questions from verse 27 onwards. You see, I think it is possible to turn the way we approach communion itself into a qualification to get us right with God. As if my new covenant security actually depends on how sincere I am or the quality of my self-examination. All of that is back to front. Jesus dies for us. It's him that guarantees the new covenant relationship. We mustn't make the Lord's Supper another kind of work of self-righteousness. That last minute might not have made any sense to you, but I hope when we go into the examples, it will. And so hold on with me if you're feeling a bit lost by that. Let's go into verse 27. And this is how we uh, are to remember and proclaim Christ's death. Just practically, how do we approach it? Verse 27. Firstly, take it seriously. Verse 27. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Why do we need to take it seriously? Well, because God does. Verse 29, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Those are quite clearly scary words, sobering words. Clearly, God himself takes this meal seriously. I think that's understandable. 
when you think how it focuses on his only eternal son's self-sacrificial death, when it focuses on the heart of eternal salvation, it's not just any old meal, but the language is properly scary. Paul says it's possible to eat it in a way that eats judgment on myself. He even says with his apostolic insight, verse 30, that's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. And what do we make of that? Let me say a few things. Firstly, even for the Corinthians, look at God's purpose in verse 32. God's purpose, even for those who have got sick, is not punishment or eternal condemnation. It couldn't be because there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus and nothing can separate us from Christ's love, Romans 8. It's all paid for on the cross. So the purpose is not punishment, rather loving discipline, waking them up to their senses, or I guess in the case of those who've died, taking them home before they do anything worse. God's aim for these believers is for them not to be condemned in the end. So that's the first thing, even for them. There's a purpose of discipline, not condemnation. Secondly, though, as we think about ourselves, I don't think this means we should look under every illness for a warning of discipline. Partly because none of us are the Apostle Paul. None of us have this direct authority to declare God's verdict on a particular circumstance. But also because Scripture tells us there are lots of reasons why people get ill, why the Lord allows sickness in someone's life. It's part of the groaning of a fallen world. It's part of the trials he sends our way to grow us in steadfastness, endurance, character, hope. So let's not over-apply these verses, not least because something really seriously bad has gone wrong in this corporate church setting. But nevertheless, this should be a real warning to how seriously God takes communion. See, the third thing to note about the Corinthians here is that they were... They were just too complacent about their behavior, their sin, their idolatry. We saw that in chapter 10. They were kind of two-timing the living God with the idols of their city, as if God doesn't really mind a double life. And now they've been doing that vertically double life, but now double standards horizontally as well, not applying the gospel to others on Sundays. See, for the complacent, breezy Christian... The one who thinks, well, that's fine, I'm, I stand, I take communion, doesn't really matter what else happens in my life. Or well, this should be a wake-up call. As chapter 10, verse 20, 21 said to us, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? 10, verse 22. So there is a warning here. We can't live a double worship life, two-timing the living God. We can't just bring the self-centered values of Edinburgh straight into church. We mustn't humiliate those who have less. It is a warning to take it seriously too. Verse 28, examine ourselves. Or verse 29, to discern the body when we eat and drink. But what does discern the body actually mean? We all need to do it, so... Listen up for this bit. What does discern the body actually mean? I think this is talking about taking the Lord's Supper thoughtfully and thoughtfully in two directions. Firstly, reflecting on my need 
for Jesus' body on the cross. As I reflect on my own sin, my need for Jesus, I'm to think about Jesus' body on the cross, as in verse 27. But I think deliberately Paul wants us, as he uses the word body, to also think about the church body. That's the way he uses that language in chapter 12, verse 12. That's the way he's used that language in chapter um, 10 as well. Chapter 10, verse 17. So as we take it seriously and take it thoughtfully, I'm both to be thinking about how I needed Jesus, his body on the cross, to pay the price for me, and how, because we've all come in the same door, we are all one body. Discern that this isn't just some slap-up grub. It's proclaiming Christ's death for me and for this whole local church body. At that point, I wonder if there are some Christians here with a worried or a kind of anxious conscience who've been shifting nervously in your seat for quite a while. We've seen how seriously God takes it, I mean, people are dying and getting ill in Corinth. We've heard that without the right self-examination, the right thinking, I could drink judgment on myself. Well, perhaps it would be safer not to join in at all. Perhaps the least risky approach is to abstain. Now, I can understand how sometimes people get themselves into that position from this passage. But I do have to say, I really think it's missing the point. Partly, these people weren't anxious. Paul's speaking like this because they were complacent. They were blind to how they turned the Lord's Supper into a cliquey feast that humiliated the poor. He's trying to wake up the complacent. Also, notice verse 31. He does put a line in for the person who's aware that they're not worthy. Verse 31. If we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. You see, if you're aware that you're a sinner... That's a true judgment. If you're aware, perhaps acutely aware, that you're not worthy of the Lord Jesus, not worthy of this meal, not worthy to be called a son of God, such is the mess we've made, whether from a particular spectacular failure in the past or just a long-standing pattern of falling short of the holy living God. If you think that of yourself, you're judging truly and therefore not at risk of judgment. None of us brings anything to the meal apart from our sin and our desperate need for Jesus to die for us. So you have to remember point two. You have to remember the Passover. It's but for the lamb, I'd be in trouble. Isaiah, but for the suffering servant, I'd be in trouble. And Jesus himself, this is my body, which is for you. Can you see the irony of saying, actually, I think I'm... I'm too bad to be covered. There are two categories of people for whom the meal is not safe to eat. If you're not yet a Christian and you don't want to become one tonight, you should not eat. Secondly, if you're someone who bears the name of a brother, of a Christian, but you're refusing to repent of a sin, just refusing to listen to Jesus as your Lord, ignoring other Christians, Um, as as the guy in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, well then, yes, for you, it would not be safe to eat. 
But for the worried Christian, the anxious sinner, this is precisely the meal you need. Our self-examination is not... It's not some work to kind of get us into the right state, to kind of clean us up a bit before Jesus will have us. Not at all. It's purely a reminder to just be real with ourselves and the Lord and say, afresh, I'm not clean. I need you to die for me. I need you to guarantee the new covenant I could never deserve. And it's why we take it together, because we all come empty-handed. It's a level playing field, equal, forgiven sinners at the foot of the cross. Just as we close, I wonder if (coughs) the kind of corporate togetherness of the meal is, is possibly sometimes a blind spot for us in the UK. It's just clear all the way through this passage that the Lord's Supper is a communal activity as well as a personal one. So verse 33, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Yes, we're to examine ourselves. It's right to have moments of self-reflection as we're led to the supper. But also we're to discern the church body around us. It's not just about me and my God. It's about us. And that does mean that if there is a relationship in church that's not right, if you're aware that there's a relationship where there's unforgiven sin, or perhaps you've just been avoiding talking about something, this would be a good week to go to that person and put things right. Finally, if you're not yet a Christian, the Lord's Supper would be a great way to start. It's absolutely the heart of the good news of Jesus that we who could not stand before a holy God on our merits can trust Jesus to die for us and be brought into the most amazing, diverse family. Let's pray. Father, we do pray as we turn to your Lord's Supper, as the Lord Jesus hosts us in remembering him, We pray that you would help us to examine ourselves and to reflect on his death in our place and to reflect on how you've made us a body together. Help us, we pray, and strengthen us through this means of grace. In Jesus' name, amen.